again, there's a church up at Moosehead Lake in Greenville where I've been ministering in the summer for quite a few years now, and we had a great time. It was so beautiful. I'm sorry to say that it probably never got above 80, and um, it was sunny all the time, and since the Lord said, take dominion over the animals, I did some fly fishing, and, but it was, a great, it was a great time for us, very relaxing, and our son's getting married Saturday, so we praise the Lord for that, we're exci- or Friday, rather, we're excited about that, so, but if you're visiting with us, we want to welcome you, and this morning we're going to be studying from the book of Amos, if you've been attending with us, you know that we're reading through the Bible, and we study the Bible verse by verse. So if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come in just a moment. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. You might say, why in the world would you study the book of Amos? And I could suggest two things. One, if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, and Amos, and you meet, and he says, how'd you like my book? You know, you're kind of that embarrassing stare. you will be like, oh, it's very biblical. He'll, well, what'd you like about it? So... And then secondly, because the Bible says all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. And so every word of God is is a blessing. Man shall not live by bread alone. So we just finished the book of Romans, and sometimes it's a little stretching to go, well, the minor prophets, I'm not used to that. But one of the things we want you to learn to do is to be able to read the Bible. Many of you are reading the Bible on your own. It's not something that you have to be a scholar. But one thing that's important is that you start in the beginning of a book and read your way through. And so that's one of the best ways to learn how to read the Bible is follow along and study the scriptures together. But there's an assumption here. We believe the Bible is God's word. So it's revealed by God to man and it's authoritative. So if the Bible says it doesn't matter what your church or you or I believe, we want to conform ourselves to God's word. So the story of Amos is set against the backdrop of the big story of the Bible. The Bible's not a bunch of jumbled books. There's 66 books, but it's It's all woven together by God telling one grand story about how God created the world and man fell into sin and left to themselves, this world would self-destruct. But God loves people, he loves this world, and he's chosen to offer a way of salvation. And this way was planned before the foundation of the world. He would choose a nation, he would create a nation through Abraham, the Jewish people. He selected them and made a covenant with them, and then he told Abraham, Through the nation of Israel, all the nations of the world can be blessed. And ultimately, that's because the Jews, the Jewish people, were the ones who brought Christ to us, the Savior, Jesus. And so, in the Old Testament, the people of God had made a covenant with the Lord. When when Moses led them out of Egypt, they made this contract, and God gave them the Ten Commandments, and then he gave them these laws, and he said, "'If you will obey me, you will be blessed above all the nations of the earth.'" But if you reject me, then you will be disciplined harshly. And so the story of the Old Testament shows, as Pastor Bob talked last week about, how many times the nation of Israel turned away from God. And then God would raise up prophets to call them back to God. Now, if you remember, Amos was not a professional prophet. Amos was a shepherd. And he was a fig picker. How'd you like, or a fig pincher, rather. How'd you like to have that job? If, if you had sycamore trees and fig trees, you, you had to pinch the figs to help them ripen. So in the middle of this book, they tell Amos, stop prophesying. Go make your living somewhere else as a prophet. He goes, I'm not a prophet. He goes, God came to me and he called me to come preach to you. And so the book of Amos is, is, a, is a very fascinating story because it's like, what does this have to do with me? This was 800, 700 B.C. 
how does it relate to us? Well, it's fascinating how relevant it is to our culture. So we're in Amos chapter 2, and let's pray and we'll begin. And could we get that map up there, if, if you have that, Robert? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you so much that we can learn from Amos relevant things for how you view people and this world today. And for our visitors, we pray that they will feel welcome and that they will begin to learn the scriptures with us and that you will continue to bless your word and demonstrate the power and authority of the gospel. And may the Holy Spirit move in our midst to expand and reach people and build your church for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. So Amos is from Judah. God appears to him in the midst of his occupation. He goes, I want you to go up to Israel, and I want you to start preaching to them. And I want you to tell them to turn from their sins and get back to my word. So Amos shows up in Israel, and he begins to start preaching to them. And so the first section, chapters 1 and 2, Amos takes the message of the word of God, and he begins to denounce all the countries around Israel. He says, this is what God says. He's going to destroy Philistia. He's going to destroy Edom. He's going to destroy Adam, Aram. And, and he's going to judge them because they didn't take care of one another. They fought against one another. And, of course, the people of Israel are like, yes, God, you're going, to, you're going to get those bad ISIS. You're going to get those bad people. But now that we come to chapter 2, last week Pastor Bob showed how he was denouncing all the cities around. But now Amos is going to do Moab. See where Moab is just east of Judah, and they're going to go, yeah, get them too. And then Amos is going to drop the bomb. He's going to go, oh, by the way, God's coming after you too. And he, and he speaks to Judah and Israel. So let's look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. We'll start with what he says about Moab. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, when God says for three transgressions and for four, back then that was just... Uh, a, um, when you communicated something, you added a number. You would go, I'm going to give you six, no, seven whippings. So in the book of Proverbs, it says there are six things that God hates. There are seven which are an abomination to him. So don't make a big deal out of the three, four. His point is, I'm mad at Moab, and here's why. It says, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. And you're like, what? Well, Historians have told us that Moab and Edom, can we put the, the slide back up for just a moment, Robert? The, Moab and Edom were these two countries that were right above and below one another, and they hated each other. Archaeologists have even found they had built a wall between them. They couldn't stand each other, and so there was great hostility, and they would war against each other. But there was a time when the Moabites captured and defeated the Edomites, and instead of just killing their king, they not only killed him, but then it says they burned the bones to lime. And I learned something as I was studying this, and that is that back then, even the surrounding nations around the Jewish people believed in some sort of a resurrection. It was weird. It wasn't what God had revealed. But they believed that people could come back to life. So it appears that the reason they burned the bones was not to cremate them, but it was an act of intense hatred. Like, I not only want to kill you, I want your bones to be ground up so that you'll never even take part in the resurrection. It was just great hatred and hostility. And whenever people hate on one another, God doesn't like that. And when nations are killing each other, God's not going to stand there and watch that forever. So look what he says. Here's what I'm going to do. Verse 2. So I will send fire upon Moab. 
It will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Now, Kiriath was a, was a town in Moab that was their cultic center for their god. Their god was named Chemosh. And so God's like, I'm going to bring my judgment on them. Moab will die amid tumult with war crowns, with war cries and the sound of a trumpet. I will cut off the judges from her midst and slay all her princes with him, says the Lord. And by now, the Jews are probably high-fiving each other. God's like, and I'm going to get Edom, and I'm going to get Moab, yeah. And now Moab says, oh, by the way, I'm going to get you, Judah. And God's like, I'm getting you, Judah. And the Jews are like, wait, us? We're not the bad guys. We're your people. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. In other words, you guys are going to get it too. But there's a different reason. All the other countries, he was judging them because they rejected the natural revelation that he had given them. You don't need to hear a word from the Bible to know that to kill one another and hate one another is wrong. The Bible teaches that. People are born with a conscience. So people that never heard one word of the Ten Commandments, they still know certain things about right and wrong. So when God was denouncing the other countries, and he will judge countries, there are countries that have no exposure to the Bible, people groups, but they're still going to be judged. But those who have heard the Bible, God's word, I got some good news and some bad news. Anybody who hears the Bible, that's a great privilege because you have the opportunity to come to God and to be saved. But with it is a great responsibility. If you reject God's words, your judgment will be far more severe. Your punishment, because you and I knew better, will be far worse. See, a lot of people think God's punishment and judgment of lost people is the same. It's not. When Jesus was on earth, he did miracles in front of the, the people, and he said, woe to you, Chorazin. If I did the same miracles in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. So therefore, your judgment and their judgment, theirs will be more tolerable. And so in the same way, look what God says to Judah. I'm not going to discipline you because you rejected natural revelation. Look at verse 4. But because they rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. In paraphrase, they're basically saying, we, we don't want to follow the Bible. We're not doing it. Can you imagine people today who know the Bible and don't want to do what it says? Does that still happen? Haven't you ever wrestled with that? Haven't you ever felt like at times, I know what God says in the Bible, but frankly, I don't care. I don't want to do that. And I understand that. I, I don't wake up every morning going, oh, I want to obey God. Sometimes it's a lot harder to obey God, right? It's a lot easier to say, I'm tired of a difficult marriage. I'm slipping out the back, Jack, and making a new plan, Stan. Or if I'm honest and pay my taxes, this is, this is crazy. But there's a high penalty when you decide, I don't want to obey God anymore. And usually it starts like this, and maybe you've been wrestling. I don't know whether I believe this. But as soon as you start going, I don't know whether I believe this, you can mark this down right behind it. Well, I don't know whether I'm going to behave this way anymore. And so we live in a culture full of not only pagans, but people who call themselves Christians who are rejecting the law of the Lord. They really don't care what the Bible says, and they're not going to do it. Now, 
if we're just thinking logically, why would anybody disobey God? I mean, it's not rocket science to go, it's really not a good idea to disobey God. God creates Adam and Eve. He says, bless you, you can have any fruit. Just don't eat from this tree. Isn't it insanity to disobey God? But here's how it works. People disobey God because their minds begin to believe lies. See, that's how Satan works. So look at the rest of the verse. The reason they stopped obeying God is it says, their lies have led them astray, verse 4. Those after which their fathers work. The NIV says they're false gods. So I want you to think about this. Whenever you and I do things that disobey God, almost every single time it's because we believe a lie. Let me give you a couple examples. Well, God says that you shouldn't have sex before you're married. But everyone's doing it. And besides, we have the natural desires. It's just man putting those things on us. Or, yeah, I, I can't be happy with this woman, so I think I'll have an affair on the side. See, we believe lies. If I work, 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 and get all this money, I'm going to be happy. It never dawned on you. That's how Satan works. He deceives us. He deceives us into believing that God's way doesn't have our best interest in mind. And so all of us at times believe lies. And our hearts become hardened. And it's dangerous. Hebrews chapter 3 says, Be careful lest any of you have a hardened heart by the deceitfulness of sin. So, I sympathize with these people. I say, yeah, listen, I, I can understand. Nobody's on fire for the Lord and one day wakes up and says, I'm not obeying God anymore. There's an erosion. Maybe you stop reading your Bible. You start hanging around ungodly people. You're tired of struggling. But please understand this, that when people turn away from God, it's because they're believing lies. And that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to put up these ideas in your mind that if you start believing them, then he'll get you away from God. I don't have to obey my parents. That's stupid. That's old-fashioned, right? So, so think about this. You and I all know people who are misled by Satan's lies. Maybe it's about Christ. They're going, I don't think Jesus is the only way. Well, anyone who believes that is believing a lie, according to the Bible. No, it's not, it's not we're smarter than them. We just happen to know the truth and we believe that the truth sets men free. So what do you do about it when your children, isn't this every parent's fear? Your kid comes home from college and says, I don't believe that stuff anymore. And your heart just falls down to the ground. Well, these are strongholds of Satan. And these are not lies that we can unravel with our own clever intelligence. Like, I'll talk my kid out of this. But what we have to do is realize that when people believe lies, it's because Satan is waging a warfare in their minds. And Paul called these strongholds. So when Paul was trying to persuade the Corinthians to stop believing lies, he said to them in 2 Corinthians, he said, though we walk in the flesh, this is 2 Corinthians 10, we don't war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for destroying fortresses. So your kid has an idea in his mind. God isn't real. That's a lie. That's a fortress in his mind. What's going to destroy that lie? Paul says, 
The weapons of our warfare are powerful to destroy these fortresses. We destroy speculations and lofty things raised up against the knowledge of Christ. So you and I have been privileged by God to have our eyes open to know the truth, right? But we need to understand Satan's always trying to persuade us to believe his lies. The Bible's just another book. You don't have to obey it. Jesus isn't the only way. It's okay to have same-sex marriage. This stuff is old-fashioned. So that's how God works. He gives us the truth, and he says, if you're my children, I'm going to discipline you if you reject my words and if you believe lies. So he said in verse 5, I'll send fire upon Judah, and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. But now in verse 6, Amos 2, 6, now, now the people in Israel are going, yes, he even whacked Judah. This is great. God's getting everybody. And now, and now God says, oh, Israel, now it's your turn. So look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Now, I, I want you to think about this. Punishment. This is really important. Does God punish his people? Yes and no. You see, the Bible teaches that all of us who break God's laws deserve to be punished. And we don't pick our, we don't, mother, mother doesn't say, would you rather us take your cell phone or would you rather be grounded? We don't pick the punishment. God does. God is holy. God is just. And he has set divine standards. And he says, if you break my laws, the wages of sin is death. And though, you know, people will say, ah, that's, that's extreme. God, my God would never put anyone in hell. According to the Bible, you're believing a lie. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. Not because he liked it, because he doesn't want you or me to go there. So, God says the wages of sin is death, and the penalty for sin is eternity in hell. God will never punish Christians for their sin because he already punished Christ. When Jesus hung on that cross, the Bible says he was crushed for my iniquities. He took all of God's wrath and he paid for it. Could someone say amen to that? I'm really glad about that. When Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't say, I did my part, you do yours. He said, it's finished. And that's the beauty of the gospel of grace. You come to Jesus just as you are, and you cast yourself on him, and, and you're forgiven because of him. And from that day on, the Bible says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He will never punish you in the, in the afterlife. So when you're told, oh, you're going to go to purgatory, that is not in the Bible. Jesus paid it all. It is finished. The Bible says in Hebrews 1, after he made one sacrifice for sins, he sat down. So cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Believe that his cross provided full and free forgiveness. However, as a child of God, once you're forgiven, and that's the most important thing. If you're not saved, if you're not forgiven, you're going to be punished for your sins. But if you're a child of God, this is the problem. There are a lot of churches that go, come just as you are. Jesus loves you just as you are. And then they stop. Because that's true. But we need to add one more phrase. He loves you too much to leave you that way. So once I become a Christian, now God has a purpose to change me into the image of Jesus. God has a design for me to walk in obedience and love for him. 
And so if I'm angry and selfish, he wants me to become peaceful and sacrificing and loving. If I'm lustful and proud, he wants me to be humble and pure. He wants me to be wise and godly and prayerful and learn to love others. And he can do that for any of you. You don't have to qualify. Jesus gives you a new heart. He takes out your old hard drive. He gives, I'll give you a new birth. I'll put my spirit within you. I'll give you a heart of flesh, cause you to follow me. But if you're a Christian, you've probably learned this by now. It's not a good idea to tell God, I don't want to obey you, and I'm not going to do that. And you can try it. David tried it in Psalm 32. He said, when I kept quiet about my sin, he said, God, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You see, the Bible says this in Hebrews 12. The Lord loves his children. So do not despise when he disciplines you. For those whom the Lord disciplines, he loves. See, God doesn't discipline unbelievers in this life. He disciplines his children. If you can comfortably sin away, do whatever you want, and your life is just cruising along, and you're not convicted by God, and God doesn't discipline you, you should be frightened. Hebrews chapter 12 says God disciplines his children. If you're without discipline, you're not a child of God. So though on the outside a person might say, hey, I'm a Christian and I live with my girl and we ain't married and I'm happy. If they're really a Christian, I know what's going on in their heart. The Holy Spirit is convicting them. They're oppressed. They, they feel the weight of disobedience. And God speaks gently, but he spanks firmly. And I've been disciplined by God, and I'm sure if you're a Christian, you've been disciplined by God. You get it. And so David, in Psalm 32, when he came out of God's discipline, he then said this. He goes, learn from what I learned. Don't be like a horse or a mule who you have to drag along with, with a bridle. God says, I'll counsel you with my eye upon you. So, so let's, let's refocus. You a believer? You're forgiven. There's no condemnation. But now Jesus wants us to trust and obey him. And the more you align yourself with him and walk with him, you will find rest and joy for your souls. But if you're fighting against him all the time, you will be disciplined. And so maybe God's speaking to you this morning. Do you want that burden of discipline to be lifted? Just surrender to him. Confess your sins. Hebrews 12 is a beautiful passage for you to read and think about and get back right with the Lord. It's such a joyful thing when Christians get right with the Lord again. It's so much better. Not easy, but so much better. So, let's see why God was going to discipline Judah. He says in verse 6, Well, first of all, they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Probably what they were doing there is they were, and we're going to get to this later in the book, they were in the court system oppressing people, especially the poor. So they would, a rich guy would take a poor guy to court he would bribe the judges, and then they would take away all the possessions and fine the poor man. And then the poor man couldn't pay his fine, and so they'd say, well, then you'll have to be sold into slavery. They were actually selling other Jews as slaves. They were oppressing the poor. God says, you crush the head of the helpless, and you turn aside the way of the humble." So the first thing they were doing is they were oppressing poor people and they were being unfair to them. But secondly, there was sexual sin. Look at verse 7. A man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. Does that make sense? A man and his son 
with the same woman. You go, that's gross. It is gross. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's not something that God hadn't thought about. When he gave the law in Leviticus 18, he said, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. And in Leviticus 18, he also said, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your daughter-in-law. She's your son's wife. But you see, when you think about sex, there's so much confusion in our culture. There's so many lies that people believe. Number one, sex is not bad. It's not the nasty. God created it. It's a gift from God for pleasure and procreation. But it's for marriage alone. No exceptions. The Bible says marriage is honorable and the bed's undefiled. But fornicators, people who have sex before marriage, and adulterers, people who have extramarital sex, God will judge them. And so their sexual sin is no different from the sexual sin that goes on in our culture. Right now, there's so many sexual sins committed in our culture. If you're having sex and you're not married, you're sinning and God's going to discipline you if you're Christian. And he's going to judge you if you're not. If you're having an affair, you're not fooling God. But there's so many other things. One of our, our cultural blights right now is sexual abuse. According to statistics, six out of ten girls in America are abused. And this is not outside. This isn't just with the exception of people who go to church. So one of the things that I always try to say is that the church is a hospital. It's not a place where all good people come and they go, hey, I'm glad we're with all the good people. It's a place where sinners come to get help. And so if you've been abused and you've never told someone and you're living with that pain and that devastating shame that comes with that, I want to encourage you to talk to someone. First of all, you're not alone. And I'm not just talking to ladies, men as well. I've talked to men who have been abused. If someone's abused you, don't allow that lie that it's too shameful to talk about. Talk to someone. And then on the other hand, I want to go so far as to say, if you've abused someone, you might feel such shame and pain like, oh no, if anyone knew, God would never love me. He still loves you. He will forgive you. But the Bible says, let the wicked forsake his way and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Jesus loves us. And so maybe some of you are struggling with pornography addictions or there's all kinds of things. I know for a fact there are people here who have same-sex attraction, right? Well, my heart goes out to you. That, that must be extremely difficult. But if you're practicing that, then you're sinning. And that doesn't make you, you know, some terrible person worse than anybody else. But this is how God, God's not some far off God, he's talking to us. And he's talking to the church and he's saying, Christians are called by God to be different. First Thessalonians 4 says, this is God's will for Christians that we learn to possess our body in holiness, not in lustful passion like godless pagans. And God has given us the Holy Spirit. And so, Jesus is full of mercy if we're honest and repentant. Well, what else were they doing? On verse 8 says, on garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. Now you go, what in the world is that talking about? Back then, if, if someone got a fine or they owed you a debt, they had to leave some, some way that you would be assured of getting paid. And so frequently they would give you their cloak, which was 
their jacket kind of. But this was also, this was their sleeping bag. Okay, so if a poor man, all he had was a cloak, that was a big deal. That's all he had. So in the book of Leviticus, God said, you can, you can take a man's cloak as a pledge, but Exodus 22 says you've got to give it back to him before the sun sets. Don't keep his cloak. For God said, that's his only covering. It's his cloak for his body, and what shall he sleep in? It'll come about that when he cries out to me, I will hear him if you keep his cloak. And so Amos says, oh, so, so here's what you're doing. You're taking garments from the poor people, and you stretch out on it. You're sleeping on it. And not only are you sleeping on it, you're sleeping on it in an idol's temple beside every altar. And while you're there, you're drinking wine from those you have fined. So you oppress these poor people. You take their wine away. You go and you sleep on their garment in your pagan godless altar. And you call yourself my people. Now at that point, I would have expected God to say, I'm telling you right now, you are going to get blasted. But instead... He, he, he extends mercy. Now, I want you to think about this. There are many reasons why to turn and follow God, to, to believe in Jesus and to start obeying him. One of them is fear. It's not all a bad idea to say, you know what? I'm afraid of God. If you're not afraid of God, you should start doing that. But it's not the best reason to obey God. The best reason to obey God is gratitude and a response of his grace and mercy. There's nothing that even comes close. God doesn't want us to love him because we're afraid of him. Perfect love casts out fear. He wants us to love him because he loved us first. And he's done so much for us. When we sin, he doesn't want us to go, why, I should get you with lightning. He wants us to go, Jesus, after all you did for me on that cross, I feel so bad that I, that I continue to disobey you. So look at how God appeals to his people. He says, let's think back. You're not obeying me, but let's think back what I've done for you. And you and I can do the same thing. We can think, what has God done for me? Look at verse 9. God says, you're not obeying me, but it was I who destroyed the Amorite. See, the Amorites were the Canaanites in the promised land, and they were wicked people. God said, their iniquity has gotten full and I'm going to destroy them. So God destroyed these strong, powerful Amorites. He says, his height was like the height of cedars. He was strong as oak. I destroyed his fruit above and his root below. And you say, well, God never did that for me. And I say, yeah, he did. Because he destroyed a strong man in your life and mine. And that was Satan. I don't know if you even believe in the devil, but if you're a Christian... He's very real, and he's very powerful. And the Bible says everyone who's not a Christian is held captive by Satan. They are blinded and deceived and energized and a prisoner of Satan. And when you become a Christian, this is one of the great things about becoming a Christian. Paul said, God sent me to turn men from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. It's not fun being the devil's right-hand man, and many people don't even realize it. But one of the things God's done for us is that when we became a Christian, Colossians 1 says, he's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness. He snatched us from Guantanamo, so to speak, and he's put us in the kingdom of his beloved son. It is a blessing to be set free from Satan. And maybe you haven't thought about that lately, but that's a good reason why we should love and obey God, because he came and he took me from a powerful, wicked 
being who was going to drag you to hell with him. And God said, no, you don't. I love him. And he pulled us out of there. But not only did he deliver us from Satan, he redeemed us by his own blood. See, in the Old Testament, there was a great redemption. It was when God took them out of Egypt. The Bible says he redeemed them with a strong arm. So look at verse 10. God says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I led you in the wilderness for 40 years that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. And can I remind you that that's what God did for us. He redeemed you with his blood. He bought you with a price. He rescued you. And that's why we should obey him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's inside of you? You're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. So as Christians, I look at this and I say, hey, why were these people who call themselves God's people not obeying him? Did they forget that they were delivered from a strong man? Did they forget that they were redeemed? And the reality is, yeah, sometimes we do. And that's why we need to be in church and be studying the Bible with other Christians so we can be reminded and warned. Look at the next verse. God says, let me tell you something else I did for you. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Isn't this so, sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the, the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Now, let me paraphrase it. God says, I gave you preachers. Why? Why does God give us people to preach the Bible? Because he loves us. The word of God is powerful and it convicts us. I met a lady one time who said, I stopped going to that church because the pastor was always stepping on my toes. Now, I understand that. Do, do you like to be corrected? No, I don't like to be corrected. But one of the wisest things you'll ever learn in life is the Bible says, fools scoff correction. Wise people receive correction. If you're in a church where they're preaching the whole Bible, you're going to get corrected. And I get corrected as I study the Bible. But that's a good thing. And the problem is there are so many people in our culture right now who don't want to be corrected. The Bible warns about that. It says in the last days, many will turn away from the truth and they'll turn aside wanting their ears tickled. But Paul says to Timothy, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort people with great patience. I've known of people who have left this church. Oh, Pastor Tom's too harsh. And honestly, I apologize if, if I come across harsh. I have no reason or right to be harsh because I'm not God and I'm a fellow sinner. But if I preach the Bible and there are things that God is reproving your heart for, then please understand that that's God's love for us. I'm glad that God convicts me and speaks to me. And sometimes people stop coming to church and there's all kinds of excuses. One of them is they don't want to hear the Bible. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And so they said to the prophet, stop it. We don't want to hear this stuff anymore. Because God addresses sin. He addresses marriage and divorce, and he addresses immorality and drug abuse and oppression 
and lying and deceit and sexual sin. He speaks of them, but it's because he loves us. And now God shares his emotions. He says in verse 13, Behold, I'm weighted down beneath you, as a wagon is weighted down when filled with sheaves. Now, my daughter was here in the first service. She has three kids. She says to my wife the other day, she goes, I kind of see. It's kind of a lot harder. I raising kids. And you know, I remember when I, when I had little babies and this old lady said to me, some of my kids are hard to love. And I'm like, what? They're so precious. It just oozes out all the time. But there are days, and my heart goes out to you mothers, training children is a lot of work. And there are times where you're like, I've reached my limit. If you're at that point, Titus chapter 2 says this, older women are to train younger women to love their children. Thank you, sister. <laughs> now I'm getting warmed up. It also says they need to, it literally it says this, they need to train the younger women to love their husbands. Amen. Husbands are hard to love, right? That's the truth. But the point is, God's going, listen, I'm weighted down. You, you've disobeyed me so much. I, I'm going to do something. So here's what he says. He says, I'm going to send judgment. And we know from history it was the Babylonians. And, and at this time in their culture, the Israelites were proud of their army. People don't do that, right? There aren't countries that are proud of their army. No one can stop us, right? But when God strikes fear, the strongest, bravest people can turn into cowards. Look at verse 14. Flight will perish from the swift. The strong man will not strengthen his power. The mighty man won't save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day. Now, he doesn't mean he'll take off his clothes. He means the warriors will throw down their weapons and run away scared. You've all heard that joke, right? Because I have to be politically correct, I won't name the nation, but there's a, there's a nation that's pretty famous for being non-willing to, to defend themselves. In fact, there's a joke about how they, they put all their military guns up for sale. And, and, and one of the taglines was, never been used, right? Because as soon as the bad, we give up, right? Now, some of you are going, what country is it? Don't worry about it. But the point is, <laughs> God, just as a side note, we ought to thank God for this country because it is the land of the free and the home of the brave. There have been many, many brave men and women who have stood their ground and died or stood their ground and lived. And so we ought to thank God for that. But let's not be proud and think, oh, no one can ever bring us to our knees. At this point, I think Amos is thinking to himself, please don't shoot the messenger. Because remember what he just said? God sent prophets, and you said don't prophesy. So, we're going to end this morning, first eight verses. What he's going to do now, he's going to say, all right, I just told you you're going to get God's discipline. But now let me tell you why. I'm a prophet, but let me tell you why I'm doing this. All right? So look, look what he does, verse one. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. Now, first of all, what I like about that when he says the entire family is, remember, Israel and Judah were separate. They had a civil war, and so they considered themselves two different families. And if that seems weird, you, you need to read American history, right? We almost were 
two nations under God, divisible, right? But because of the civil war, we happen to maintain one nation under God. The Jews didn't. They split. And so they viewed themselves as two nations, but God didn't view them that way. You're my people. You're one family. And that's a good reminder for us as Christians because there are so many fractions and splits and fractions rather than splits. We're this denomination. We're Methobacterian. Every true born-again Christian is one family. We might, we might disagree on some of the minor things, but we're one people of God. There's not black Christians and white Christians and rich Christians and poor Christians and American Christians and Hispanic Christians and Baptist Christians and Presbyterian Christians. They're Christians. One family. And we need to pray for unity and love. But, but, but God appeals now to their election. He says, listen, my people, verse 2. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I'll punish you for your sins. Now, again, it's discipline. I want you to think about this. When he says, you only have I known... Does that mean he didn't know any? I never heard of Ammon. What he means by know here, many Bibles say, you only have I chosen. You see, this is what's really cool about being a Christian. You're not a Christian. I'm not a Christian because I'm smarter than the average bear. I figured it out. You're a Christian because God chose you. He initiated your salvation. He saw you in your sin, and he loved you, and he opened your eyes. You were dead and he made you alive. He granted you and me repentance. And that's called being elect. And so God appeals to that. I, I chose you. If, you. if those of you who are adopted, especially if you were adopted by, a, by a, a healthy family, you think to yourself, I could have spent my life in this orphanage, but someone picked me. And that's how the world is. There's 8 billion people in this world, 7 billion people. Few of them are going to heaven. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Men are going to hell, and it's all their fault. But if you become a Christian, God says, you have I chosen. And if you're chosen of God, the New Testament says, therefore, being chosen of God, be humble and compassionate and live your life for Christ. So Amos begins to ask a series of questions. This is a cool passage. He starts asking questions, and the answer is, yes, yes, yes. And then he goes, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Look at verse 2, or verse 3. Do two men walk together unless they've made an agreement? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? I learned something here. I've been making a mistake for years. When the Bible says the devil's a roaring lion, I always tell people, lions roar to scare their prey, and then they attack it. The lion goes, roar, and then the, and the gazelle goes, Ugh, and then the lion jumps on him. But actually, I learned from this passage, it's actually the opposite. Lions attack their prey silently. And I'm going, oh yeah, National Geographic, the lion doesn't roar and go, here I come. And then all the, they just they creep up and then boom, they pounce, right? And then after they have their prey, look what it says. That's when they roar. A lion doesn't roar when he has no prey. A young lion doesn't growl when he hasn't captured something. It's kind of like if you've ever seen UFC, and I don't recommend it, um, when a guy throws the other guy down, he's like, ah, right? So he goes, these are just natural things. People don't walk together unless they agree. Lions don't roar until they have prey. And by the way, just a side note on verse two. Do two walk together unless they've made an agreement? This is one of the reasons we plead with you. Do not marry an unbeliever. There's no point in getting into a big dating relationship. I know God saves unbelievers through dating, but missionary dating is dangerous 
The Bible says, don't be yoked together with, with, with an unbeliever for what fellowship has light and darkness? You have a whole different worldview. You're like, oh, but we love so many things together. Yeah, but the most important thing, God and his son Jesus, you're on different planets. But if you're married to an unbeliever, it's not like your life is hopeless, but it's difficult, and God can use your testimony to bring them to Christ. But by the way, for those of you that are married, can I tell you something? You already made an agreement. Remember? I solemnly swear before God that I'm going to love you. So please don't say, we're not in love anymore. That wasn't in the agreement. The agreement was, I'll love you as long as we're in love. The agreement was, in good times and bad, I'll love you till death do us part. So I, I, I don't want to make light of many of you are in a difficult marriage. And I frequently say to people, I wish I could promise you that God's going to make your marriage great. He doesn't promise that. But he promises that he will give you strength. All things through Christ, he strengthens you. For, so for some of you, here's a, here's a novel thought. You already made an agreement before God. Why not try to enjoy your marriage instead of enduring it? Why not put away your pettiness and your pride and nitpicking and criticizing one another and saying, you know what? We're in this thing together. Let's, let's surrender to the Lord and, and work this out. You can be the most different people on the planet, but if Christ is a center, you can walk together with, with peace and unity. Marriage is hard work, but it's worth it. All right, let's finish up. So Amos says, does a bird fall in a trap on the ground when there's no bait in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet's blown in a city, won't the people tremble? Back then, they had watchmen on the towers, and if the watchmen... They didn't have radar, and they didn't say, hey, the Germans are coming. We saw it on our spy plane. The watchman saw them coming. And so he would blow a trumpet, warning, they're going to attack us. And the people would go into a panic, and they'd close the wall, and they'd get their soldiers, and they'd prepare to defend their city. He goes, hey, duh, if a watchman blows a trumpet, the people tremble. And if a calamity occurs in a city, now listen to this. Hasn't the Lord done it? Now, most commentaries say something really interesting here. They said, something happened. We don't know what it was, but something bad happened in Israel, and everybody knew about it. But apparently, they didn't know why. And he's going, because God let it happen. Is that still true today? Was 911 just a random coincidence, or did God permit it purposefully? If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Does God not orchestrate painful things? No, no, he's just up there going, why are they doing that? No. So, so as, you're, as you're reading the news, I mean, every day when I go to the news, I'm like, all right, what, where is it this week? Who shot somebody? Who, who blew somebody up? God hasn't just left. We don't know all the details, but, but what's happening in our country right now you and I need to pray hard. And we need to understand that if there's a calamity in your life, God permitted it for a reason. I hate the word cancer. I hate death. I hate suffering. But we all have to understand that God never promised all happy, rosy, great stuff. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so we need to pray that when calamity happens in our country, in our churches, 
or to individual families or people that, that we understand that God must have a reason here. And he promised us that all things are going to work together for good. And that's why we have one another to bear each other's burdens and to, and to be there to help each other. Because life is hard. But then Amos says this. Look, God does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel to his servants, the prophets. I don't know about you, but I think I do. I am so glad I have this book. Aren't you? If I didn't have this book, I would have no clue what's coming. But I would say the world's gone mad and God must have left. But I have this book and God already tells me what's coming. Jesus is coming. And things are not going to get better. They're going to get worse before Christ comes. But soon and very soon, the Lord Jesus is going to come from heaven. And all of those who have come to him by faith will be welcomed into his kingdom and the rest will perish. And so God doesn't individually give us a detailed description of why every calamity happens, but he's given us the word of God. He's revealed so much to us. Every one of us is like at a play. God says, you're my kids. You can come behind the curtain and I'll show you a lot of stuff that the world has no clue what's going on. But you know why you're here and you know what I'm doing and you know I'm coming again. So relax and trust me and follow me. And then Amos says this, a lion has roared. See, in the Bible, there are three ways that God described the way he spoke in the Old Testament. One was thunder. The second was an earthquake, and the third was a roaring lion. The very first verse of of Amos, he says, a lion has roared. And so, so, when lions roar, people listen, because it's scary. When thunder happens, people listen. I was fly fishing this week, and, and in the middle of the, the, the time out there in this open river, a great thunderstorm started rolling over, and I was scared. I went in the woods. I'm like, I don't want to tempt God. I'm God's child, you know, right? Thunder's scary. Amos says, a lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? And you know what's sad? is most of Americans, they know what the word of God says, and they could care less. I ain't scared of that. I don't believe that. But notice what, what, what Amos said. He was so compelled, because a lion has word, he goes, who can but prophesy? Can I just not talk about this to anybody? Because the people around me don't believe it? See, as a Christian, Paul says, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. Knowing the terror of the Lord, I persuade men. So can I encourage you, if you're a Christian, a lion has roared. The lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus, died and rose again. And he offers forgiveness to the world. But he's coming back. The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? I'm not asking you, God's not asking you to go to the train station and stand up and preach your King James Bible and hit people. But he is asking you to speak to others about Christ. He's asking you to love people enough to say, hey, can we talk about the Bible sometime? And you're like, yeah, but they're going to get mad. They might, but they might not. A lion has roared. Who can but prophesy? We have the gospel. And as a church, it's so exciting to see it spreading because you as the people of God are taking that to people who will never come to church. You're going and talking to them where they are and sharing the gospel with them. And I want to invite those of you who are still exploring going, gee, I don't know, that Jesus loves you and he's calling you. 
and he invites you to repent and believe in him and say, I don't get it all, but I believe Jesus died and rose again. I want to come to him right now and become a Christian and become a follower. Will you do that today? Don't put it off. This might be your last opportunity. All right, let's pray. Now you know what to do. You're going to read next week from chapter 3, verse 9. I'm going to check you for your homework. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that Amos spoke forth your message. And I want to pray for our country, first of all. In Jesus' name, we pray for President Obama, and we pray for the upcoming election. You told us to pray for our kings and those in authority, that Christians will be able to lead a tranquil life in godliness. And I pray for the revival of the church in America. I pray for our church, that it will be a church characterized by humble people who love God. We're not perfect, Lord, but quick to repent and not a bunch of hypocrites. We pray, Lord, that you'll turn this country back to you before it perishes, before you destroy America for its sins. And Lord, we also pray for those who are going through pain and struggle. May they be reminded that God is in control and all things work together for good. Comfort those who, Lord, have been abused or, or harmed. For those who have been stuck in sexual sin, may you awaken them and free them and get them the help that they need. And Lord, as we go out this week, may you cause revival. May you cause a powerful working of the Holy Spirit in our friends and neighbors. Help us to teach our children carefully and prayerfully. Lord, help us not to believe lies. I pray for your people that we will believe what you believe, what you have revealed, and that you will powerfully use Bible Fellowship Church to affect Bucks County. We love you, Jesus. We thank you for choosing us, for delivering us from Satan, for redeeming us with your blood. May you send us forth excited about the grace of God that's greater than our sin. And I pray this blessing on all of us. And for those who aren't saved, I pray they wouldn't leave this morning until they talk to us, talk to someone, and inquire about their souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.